You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. podcast fans. I'm Rachel, host of We're All Mad Here, a new podcast about the history of mental health. Do you love history? Do you love creepy stories of abandoned hospitals? How about questionable medical procedures? We're covering it all. Not only will we sneak around in old asylums, we'll talk about the patients that stayed there and what their lives were like. We're covering disorders, cures, and living life with mental illness. So come join us on We're All Mad here at allmadpod.com because the history of mental illness is insane. Hi, I'm Johanna in Vienna, Austria. I'm Annie in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to Fresh Hell. We're very glad you're here. Uh, You just heard Rachel from We're All Mad Here. In her podcast, she talks about the history of mental health and the ways with mental illness was treated and the stigma that was and still is attached to it. She really does an amazing job and she puts a lot of thought and research in her episodes. So yeah, give it a listen. Yeah, that's such an important topic. And we end up talking about that a lot, don't we, in many of our older cases. All right. So hopefully you have already listened to part one of today's story on the possible serial killer who may have been hunting on the railroad lines in the year leading up to the more famous Felisca murders. I mean, worst case, you heard about a bunch of other terrible ex-murders. Yeah, I did say to you, I was going to find just a nice, simple axe murder. And then, of course, deeply regretted that when I fell down the rabbit hole of axe murders that was this case. And you could find the most forward straight, uh, here is what happened case. And you still find a way down the rabbit hole. And I think that's why we love you. It's okay. Oh, thank dog for that. You know, the funny thing is, it's like, it, there's a difference though, right? Between like, ooh, there were two Spreckles mansions and Danielle Steele owns one of them? What? And like, oh no, there were another like five <laughs> axe murders and like a little bit of a difference, you know? All right. So today we want to, oh, let's tell you about our sources. One source in particular is anyone familiar with this tragedy is going to know uh, the world's foremost expert on the Velisca murders is Dr. Edgar Epperly. Yeah, a lot of the modern articles you read all come from him, yeah. Exactly. When it comes to, you know, wanting answers on Velisca, all pretty much all roads lead back to Dr. Epperly. My favorite was a local cable access channel called CSI Iowa. I might go uh, back for more CSI Iowa. When I first found it, I was like, oh, man. But it was actually, it was really good. And it made me want to watch Wayne's World <laughs> next. <laughs> But no, really, it was. It was it was great. We'll link to it. Uh, we also used that same article that we used last week in Smithsonian by Mike Dash. Yeah, we also used uh, VilliscaIowa.com and lots of old newspaper articles um, using newspapers.com. You'll find all the specifics in our sources in our Facebook group and soon to be on our homepage, I hope. Yeah. Perfect. All right. First, let's set the scene just a little bit. It's June 1912. But you know, so in April of 1912, the Titanic tragically sank. And so this is just two months after that. 
Taft was the president. Fun fact about Taft, he was a large man, and the seats at ballparks, uh, baseball parks, are not really known for their roominess and comfort. Definitely not at Fenway. So he is actually credited with uh, creating the tradition of the seventh inning stretch. There's nine innings in baseball, Johanna. And so these days, when you get to the seventh inning, everybody sings the song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Do you know that song? Yes, I know the song. Okay, I figured just from movies and things you would. But at Fenway, the really good stuff doesn't happen until the bottom of the eighth, because that is when we all sing the Neil Diamond (laughs) treasure that is Sweet Caroline. And that's a song that's allegedly about Caroline Kennedy. Have you seen this in movies? Do you know what I'm talking about? I know Neil Diamond. I know Sweet Caroline. I know Caroline Kennedy. I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about with stretching at innings. (laughs) I think I might need more information about that after recording. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, so you know Neil Diamond. This is a a good story. After the Boston Marathon bombings, after they made the arrest and took the city off lockdown, I'm not actually sure if people that aren't from this area know, but when they were trying to find the, I think it's Zohar Sarnayev was the surviving brother, but they couldn't find him. And so there was this massive manhunt going on and the cops were basically like, to the city of Boston and surrounding towns like greater Boston. Just stay home. Don't go out. Don't go to work. Lock your doors. Lock your windows. And like they went house to house and searched some houses, all this stuff. You know, don't go to work. All of that in Boston was like, okay, no problem. Find that guy. And they did. Which just to me is just amazing that like we have a lot of problems, but we we come together as a city. And so they did catch him. He was hiding in a boat. That's a story for another day. But uh, there was a Red Sox game that was supposed to be going on, and they had postponed it because they were doing this manhunt. And if they hadn't caught him, the game would have been canceled. But they caught him, so the game was back on. And when Neil Diamond found out, he literally jumped on a red eye and came straight from Logan Airport right to Fenway to sing Sweet Caroline in person. And... Uh, I do. I, I get all choked up just thinking about that. I like baseball. I don't love baseball. But going to a game in person is wicked fun, even if I'm mostly in it for the hot dogs and overpriced Mike's Hard Lemonade because I don't drink beer and the sing-alongs. So yeah, if you come in the summer, we'll go. Paul will explain the rules. All right. <laughs> Um, all right, let's get to the good stuff. The terrible, awful stuff, uh, but the reason we are all here. So we're getting back into the axe murders of 1911 and 1912. Uh, you know what? Let's very quickly remind you of the crimes we covered in our last episode. That's a good idea. So in Colorado Springs, Colorado, on the night of September 17th, 1911, there were two families murdered. The Wayne family, Frank Blanche and their young daughter Lula, and their friends and neighbors, the Burnhams, uh, wife and mother May Alice, and the two young children, Nellie and John. They were all bludgeoned to death with an axe. The husband and father, Arthur Burnham, was originally suspected but cleared. He wasn't home. He lived at the sanitarium for tuberculosis patients. And he died not long after his family were murdered. Yeah, and then two weeks after that double event, on October 1st, 1911, in Monmouth, Illinois, the Dawson family were attacked while they slept. William and his wife Charity, who were in their early 50s, and their youngest child, almost 13-year-old daughter Georgie, they were all murdered that night. A flashlight with the inscription, quote, Colorado Springs, September 4, 1911, end quote, was found with a length of pipe, and that had been the murder weapon. Two weeks later, on October 15, 1911, in Ellsworth, Kansas, the Showman family, William and Pauline, and their three young children, Lester, Fern, and Fenton, were all murdered in their beds. 
And then there's a break of almost eight months. And then on June 5th, 1912, a young couple, Anna and Rollin Hudson, are murdered in their bed in Paola, Kansas. And this time, the weapon seems to have been a coal pick or coal axe. Yeah, so those are the murders most people think are most likely connected to Villisca. There are others, but these are the most likely. But please check out the Getting the X blog for info on other murders we didn't include. There are there are a couple more. Maybe we'll do those on their own in another episode. Maybe we won't. Who knows? Let's see. <laughs> yeah, the next murder in the series is Villisca. So let's get into the infamous Villisca X murders. So, in 1912, the population of Villisca was somewhere in the range of two to two and a half thousand people. It's actually even smaller now, only about half of that. It's just a really tiny town in southwest Iowa. Josiah Moore, who is most usually known as Joe, he was one of 14 children born to Charles Moore, who had emigrated from County Monaghan in Ireland, and his wife, Mary Gray, who was a first-generation daughter of another immigrant family from the Emerald Isle, this time from County Antrim in Northern Ireland. They were living the American dream, but it wasn't always easy for them. At least two of their children died before age two, and two of their children also seemed to have died in their 20s. So these would be Joe's siblings. And I do know that one of Joe's sisters died in 1910. She was in her 40s, and she died of Bright's disease, leaving several young children behind. So... Leading up to this unspeakable horror, this family had really already gone through more than their share of grief. Yeah, Bright's disease was the term they used for kidney diseases, and they really didn't have much in the way of treatment at the time, apart from warm bath, bloodletting, and dieting, and stuff like that. She had been divorced, which is why I believe she was living with her parents. They were in their late 70s, especially given her illness, but her obituary lists the 10 siblings still living, and only the one in California couldn't make the service. But it does drive home how, how close this family really was. Yeah, and you've listened, you've probably heard this story many times, especially if you're into true crime. We just really wanted you to be able to have a sense of who these people were, what these families went through. Yeah, so... Joe Moore married Sarah Montgomery in December of 1899, and their first child, Herman Montgomery, was born a little over nine months later in 1900. Their next child, a girl they named Mary Catherine, that was my aunt's name, that's a good good Irish name, that is. She was born in 1902. Joe and Sarah bought their house, which is located at 508 East 2nd Street in Villisca in 1903. We're going to get more into the house in a few, because this is a this is when you are welcome to visit. This is the exception to our don't go to murder houses rule. In March 1905, another baby, Arthur Boyd, was welcomed to the family. And then their youngest child, Paul Vernon, he was born in January of 1907. In 1912, Joe was 43, Sarah was 39, and their oldest was 11, their youngest was 5. Joe worked for a man by the name of F.F. Jones. Frank Jones ran a farm equipment business, but Joe, it seems he decided that working from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. six days a week was just a little bit too much to handle with his young family. Can you imagine? 
I yeah yeah. So he left. He left. He he branched off on his own, and sometime it was either 1907 or 1908. He started his own company, and when he left, he took the John Deere account with him. So John Deere is a maker of farm equipment, like tractors, and this was probably one of the most income generating accounts uh, to the business. And so all of a sudden, the men were competitors, uh, and we've got an ad for Joe's shop that we will share, of course. Yeah, not only did he take the John Deere account with him, there are rumors in pretty much every source you read that Joe either had had or was having an affair with Frank Jones' daughter-in-law. Her name was Donna. And apparently they know this because back at the time when you made a phone call, you were connected by the operator. And the operator could, if she wanted to, just listen in. You know they listened in. I would. Yeah. Wouldn't you have? I would too. Yeah. I would. That's such a boring <laughs> job, right? Yeah. Yeah, you do get the sense that Donna, who was, in fact, stunning, we're going to post a photo of her. Girl had that, like, high Edwardian hair, you know what I mean? That big, curved, oh, it was good. I think she clearly wanted people to know that she had multiple affairs. That's the sense I get. Unless she was gorgeous but stupid, she knew calling <laughs> men and asking to, them to yeah. meet her at her house was going to get out in town, right? Yeah, so scandalous. It's positively titillating. So, yeah. If any of our listeners are related to Donna, like was she your auntie or your grandma, please write in because honest to God, she sounds fun. Uh, she just, yeah. It seems like her husband had his own affairs as well. And while we're not, we're not cool with adultery at all, we're just, just impressed by the audacity just at that time to make all your arrangements over the phone. The Moore family were well respected in town and were considered an affluent family. They were sociable and also very involved in their local Presbyterian church located about three blocks from their home. On June 10th, 1912, there was a children's day event at the church in the evening that Sarah had organized. So, of course, Sarah and her husband Joe and their four kids were all going to be attending. Also attending that night were two of the Stillinger children. Lena Gertrude was 12 and Ina May Stillinger was 8. And they were good friends with Mary Catherine Moore, who had asked if her friends could spend the night. The Stillinger sisters lived about uh, two and a half miles from the church. And according to the williskaiowa.com website, that morning they walked to church services and then went to their grandmother's for supper. And they were supposed to attend the children's service that evening and then either go home or back to grandma's because they were were expected home early the next morning for school. I'm actually assuming it was at church in the morning that they met up with their friend Mary Catherine Moore and didn't want to walk home alone in the dark after this special children's day event. So Mrs. Moore called the Stillinger house and got hold of one of their older sisters who told him her parents were outside working but she said it would be fine for the girls to stay and she'd let their mother know. The Stillinger sisters were the youngest two of seven children and their parents were also called Joe, short for... Joseph and Sarah. It was a little harder to find info on their parents' history. Their dad was a first-generation American. Uh, his father, Johann Stillinger, had immigrated from Germany. Their father's family name was originally Stühlinger from Rheinheim, Germany. Their father was a prominent, well-known farmer. And their mother, Sarah, her maiden name was Hastings, and she was pregnant at the time of these events. So... That night, the Moore family and the two Stillinger girls all walked to the church around 8 and we honestly have no idea exactly what it entailed, but it seems to have been the end of that year's Bible study and the kids were reciting prayers or they were singing hymns, something like this, with a gathering right after that. And the children's day ended around 9.30 that night. 
Yeah, I don't know why they didn't call it Children's Night. Children's Night sounds bad. Like, <laughs> it sounds like something we'd avoid. I mean, to be fair, I would also avoid a Children's Day, but that's just me. <laughs> oh, what? You don't, you don't want to go for dinner and a movie on Children's Night? <laughs> it's true, but it's, yeah, Children's Day sounds like more of a celebration, I guess. Remembering my CCD classes, those are the, that's the confraternity of Christian doctrine. So if you're Catholic, then you have to take these religion classes to make your first communion and then get confirmed. And there's definitely a celebration when you're all done with those classes. And I'm guessing that's the same with all children in religious classes, like whether you go to CCD or Hebrew school or Bible study, whatever it is. It just, as a kid, it always felt a little bit like I have school. I have a school commitment, and now you're giving me another school commitment. Even when it was interesting, it felt unfair. All right. So the six members of the Moore family and the two Stillinger sisters got back to the Moore home sometime around 9.45 or 10 p.m. And when they got back to the house, they all had a snack of milk and cookies, and they went to bed. Okay, now I'm going to do my best to describe the layout of the Moore house. So they're often described as being well-to-do, well-off, affluent. This is not a large house. It's only about 600 square feet. I don't think you do uh, in Europe, you don't measure houses that way, do you? By square feet no, we, or... We measure it in square meters. Oh, in square meters. So 600 square feet would be, what, a third of that? 200 square meters? Is that right? I have absolutely no idea. Let me check. Don't let me ever tell anybody how to math because it's my worst. It's small. It's tiny. It's really small. Oh, that's small. tiny. That's 50, 55 square meters. That's yeah. tiny. Tiny, tiny for six people to be living in. Yeah, way too tiny. It's tiny. But, all right, let me tell you about the layout first. From the front porch, you would walk in and you are immediately inside the parlor. And then off the parlor was a small sewing room with an extra bed in it. And that's where the Stillinger sisters slept. And then you could walk through the parlor into the kitchen. And the kitchen had a small pantry off of it. And there were also stairs, uh, narrow, steep stairs going upstairs. Also off the kitchen was the back door. And if you went out the back door of the kitchen, there was a covered back porch, which was lead you out to the backyard, which is where the coal shed was and the outhouse was because the home had no indoor plumbing and the barn and outbuildings and stuff would all be in the back. So it's tiny. It's basically like two rooms downstairs. That's it. Steep stairs up. There's a basement, but it only had bulkhead access. There was no stairs in the house to go down to the basement. So as you walk up the stairs, it's a steep, narrow stairs, probably like the ones we have here. And at the Velisca house, you end up at the top of the stairs, you're standing in the bedroom. You're standing in the bedroom that Sarah and Joseph used. There's no hallway, you're just in the room. And then as you would pass from their room to the second upstairs room, to your left is a closet that the parents used. Now at the back of the closet is a door that leads to the attic. But the attic was on the same level as the upstairs. So usually when you think attic, you imagine going up to another a level, right? But in this house, the attic just refers to this unused space that was over 
the kitchen. So as small as this house was, only half of the upstairs was finished bedroom space. Only like the space that was the parlor and that little sewing room had rooms above. The other half was the kitchen and that was like a little lower ceiling space. So once you pass through the master bedroom to the second bedroom, this is something that you do see here. I don't know if you get it over there, but it's not uncommon in older homes where you'll have a bedroom, but the only way to get to that bedroom is to walk through another bedroom. Yeah, yeah. Same here. Yeah. And this second bedroom was the children's room, which actually makes perfect sense, right? You want your kids in a room where if they're if they're going to get up for anything in the middle of the night, they're literally walking through their parents' room to go downstairs. In the children's room, uh, there was a small closet. There was a double bed, a single bed, and then like a cot or a crib, like for a bit ba- for a baby or a toddler. And this is the room that the four children slept in. So it's a really very tiny cramped space. I wonder if, you know, things have turned out differently. I do wonder whether their daughter might have eventually gotten that downstairs sewing room as her own bedroom as she got older. But sadly, that's now sort of beside the point. We'll link to sites where you can see the house and video tours and, you know, there's layouts. You can, if you just search the house, you'll have no problem finding videos of walkthroughs and layouts and all of this. I've seen some really gorgeous grand old houses in Iowa, and I would not have ever said that this was the home of an affluent family. But I don't know why I keep coming back to this, but you get the idea. It's just a very small five-room house. Yeah, you just hear affluent and you expect house porn. Yes, I just want to see how fancy people live. I don't know. I just I just wanted the house to be more. But it's not. It's not. And that's okay. Because listen, ultimately, it was just a nice family. They were just a nice, normal family. Like a lot of us just doing their best. Not perfect. Maybe wishing you had a third bedroom. Or electricity <laughs> or running water. <laughs> I'm such a snob. I did live for th- like three or four months without running water and without electricity. It's not the best, but you get used to it. It's way easier in warm climate, though. I have to admit that. Oh, but in Mexico with no air conditioning? Well, I'm letting you in on a little secret. People lived for hundreds of years without <laughs> air conditioning in Mexico. <laughs> I know. It's not that bad. I you know. can easily do it. It's just if it would be here without um, gas or electricity or water. Yeah. Fun times. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I That's when I would have left. You stuck it out a lot longer <laughs> than I would I was young and stupid and I thought I was in love and then you can handle these kind of crazy things. This is it. When I was like in my 20s, I probably could have definitely gone for yeah. longer. But like now, oh no, we are both very much aware that we are coming from a place of privilege. So yeah. we have the choice. But yeah. So, all right. All right. So what happened? Let's see. So early the next morning on Monday, that's June 11th, the closest neighbor, which was an older woman named Mary Peckham, came out to hang her washing up, as was her routine. And she had not seen the moors since they left for church the night before. She had gone to bed at 8 p.m. and been up at the crack of dawn to do the wash. But by 7, she became very aware of and very worried by the silence. So the normally very busy Moore home should have been bustling with children doing chores. The chickens hadn't been let out yet. This was all very odd. So Mary knocked on the door but got no answer. Concerned, she tried the door but found it was locked. And some sources say that this was very unusual. 
Yeah, and you read accounts where the house was locked as usual and others where it was usually never locked. Either way, it was locked that morning and she didn't have a key. So she let the family chickens out and then she called Joe's brother, Ross Moore. Ross arrived around eight and he knocked on the door and he and Mrs. Peckham, I think they were like banging on the doors and calling out. No answer. He tried to look into windows, but they were completely covered. So finally he got one of his keys. This goes back to this old thing again where like... I I really think he just got one of the keys on his keychain to work on their door. I think things were just super iffy. We talked about that last week. Inside, uh, the parlor looked completely undisturbed, no problem. But as soon as he saw the downstairs bedroom off the parlor with the bodies of the Stillinger girls covered in blood, he immediately came back outside saying they needed to get the authorities involved immediately. Ed Zelly, who worked for Joe Moore, they called him up and sent him to fetch Henry Hank Horton. Hank was, until this point, the night watchman of the small town, and his normal duties included trying shop door handles to make sure everyone had remembered to lock up. There were 30 trains a day into Villisca at that time, so he might also suggest to any loiterers that they should catch the next train out of town, you know? Mm -hmm. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> or handle anyone drunk in public, which was rare, because even before Prohibition this area was dry, no liquor sold. Sounds fun. I mean... He had probably never had to deal with a crime scene, much less a murder. So, you know, poor Hank arrives, went through the house, and when he comes back out, he apparently was quoted as confirming to Ross his worst fears that there was, and I quote, somebody murdered in every bed, end quote. He then relocked the house and went for the sheriff. So it seems they also called Dr. Cooper. Dr. Cooper would testify at the inquest that he did see each body, but he didn't touch anything. Later, Dr. F.S. Williams would run into Ed Selly in the street. Remember, Ed worked for uh, Josiah Moore. And Ed was the one to send him over to the home. I think he was like, you better get over there. Things are bad. So Dr. Williams was the second doctor to enter the house, but he was actually the one that examined the bodies. All right. So let's talk about what they found inside the house. Inside this little house, it was very dark. Not only were the shades drawn, but clothes had been uh, from throughout the house had been taken out of the wardrobes, and they had been used to cover the two windows that didn't have shades on them. They were also used to cover mirrors and any surface that might just reflect back an image. Uh, so like the glass on the exterior doors to the house were all covered with clothing. In the sewing room off the parlor where Lena and I think it's usually here pronounced Ina, but you said, what did you say, Ina? It's probably... Ina. It probably was Ina. Here, I think they say Ina, but where, where the Stillinger girls were found, they found the axe, which had been very, like, hastily, badly cleaned, and the axe was leaning against the wall. But that wasn't the weirdest thing in the room. All right. So there was a slab of bacon that was either two pounds or four pounds, depending on the source, and that was also on the floor next to the axe. In the bed were the bodies of the two Stillinger girls. Ina was closest to the wall, and it looked like she was killed while she was sound asleep. There was a gray coat, a boy's coat, over her face. Lena, however, 
So at first, the people who looked into that room, having heard the Stillinger girls were there, thought that it was one of their older daughters. So it seems that Lena, although she was still a month shy of her 12th birthday, it seemed like she was an early bloomer because reports indicate that she had the body of a woman, not a girl. So it sounds like she had already gone through puberty. Her body was the only body that seems to have been tampered with. She was found pulled down the bed so that her bum was at the very edge of the bed and one of her knees was bent up exposing her genitals. Her underwear was under the bed and her nightgown was lifted over her head. If you remember last week, there are comparisons made between the way Georgie Dawson's body was found and the way Lena was found. There was a blood stain on the inside of Lena's knee, so there's a theory that both girls were grabbed and pulled down toward the end of the bed by the killer. Yeah, exactly. But unfortunately, Lena was... I don't want to say it was worse, because obviously both were murdered, but it seems like based on the presence of the lantern with the chimney missing and the low wick, you know, placed at the foot of the bed, I think... I I think the prevailing theory is that the killer may have spent uh, some time looking at her. And if you remember, similar lamps without chimneys were found at the murders in Ellsworth with the Showmans and I think Paola with the Hudsons. They found a piece of broken keychain that they think also belonged to the killer on the floor. All right, so there's two theories as to why there was a slab of bacon in the room. So let's just get through them. The simple one, which is the easy one, is that the killer just meant to steal the bacon because there was another two pound or four pound slab, similar slab of bacon in their fridge. And so, yep, the killer just meant to steal it, got distracted, and he forgot the bacon. Or there's the nightmare fuel option, which is that the killer used the bacon or the bacon grease as a masturbatory aid. This is something that I think only American men do. What? Well, you see that in movies, like comedy movies, where people are masturbating, American men always use like lotion or cream or something like that. Oh. I think it's because of the foreskin. Yeah, because they're all circumcised. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So we are glad to say that neither doctor on scene felt that Lena had been raped or sexually assaulted, just looked at. And it doesn't seem that they found any seminal fluid at the scene, but... I don't think we'd be surprised if they somehow found <laughs> found the person who did this and it turned out he was impotent, right? We see that a lot with violent crime or these sorts of creepy sexual aspects to crimes. Mm. And especially the overkill using, you know, a sharp object. These are all things that you yeah. often see with that sort it's of issue. It's a lot of anger then, dear. Exactly. And so there was also a bloodstain on Lena's arm, which some report as a bloodstain and others an injury, but I'm we're 99.9% .9 certain that there was no injury to her arm. It was only her head. And most people think that, like, as she was dragged down the bed, one arm got caught up and, like, stayed up over her head, which is sort of exactly the way that Georgie Dawson was found. And that that's how, you know, her, her arm, I'm sure, just came in contact with her pillowcase, which was completely covered in blood. And that's how she got blood on her arm. It's, it's very sad. Okay, so once they left the downstairs, they headed upstairs, and they apparently had to move yet another lamp with the chimney removed and the wick removed, which was at the foot of uh, Joe and Sarah's bed. That's right, because remember, you go upstairs straight into the bedroom, and sadly, as expected, both parents had been bludgeoned to death, apparently while sleeping. 
Yeah. They then walked through into the next room where they found the youngest, that's five-year-old Arthur, in his little cot. A shirt was covering his mutilated head. Then his two brothers, the eldest 11-year-old uh, Herman and seven-year-old Paul were in the double bed and then 10-year-old Catherine in the single. And they were all brutally bludgeoned to death in their sleep. And clothes were over all of their heads. Disturbingly, it's believed that the killer walked through the house incapacitating each victim with one hard fast blow with the blunt edge of the axe and then he covered all the windows and doors so no one could see in and then he spent some time in that house revisiting the bodies, beating each with incredible violence and overkill using both the blunt edge and the sharp edge of the axe to obliterate their heads after their death. There were marks on the ceilings of the upstairs rooms where the axe had hit it. They think while the killer was swinging it around his head in excitement, which is so horrifying. Yeah. Another bit of evidence that the killer lingered was um, Sarah's shoe who was found at the side of the bed where Joe and Sarah were found. Because according to the coroner, Dr. Lindquist, he believed the shoe had apparently filled with blood dripping into it from the first attack. And remember, it's possible the first hit on the adults certainly may have just knocked them out. And, you know, head wounds bleed terribly. If you ever had one, you know that. Oh, yeah. But this shoe had apparently filled with blood and then been knocked over and that blood spilled, presumably during the second frenzied attack. And to say it was an overkill is pretty much an understatement. And we'll leave it at that. I think we don't have to go. No. We're not going to go into all the gory detail. I'm sorry. No, well, that's it. And, you know, it's funny because I hate it when... I don't like podcasts that leave information out because it's uncomfortable. So like the information with the bacon and the way that Lena was posed and things like that. Like this is important information to know, but we're not, I don't, yeah, it's their, their, their heads were pretty much just gone. It's awful. So, all right. Other clues they found a bowl full of bloody water in the kitchen uh, where the killer had washed up. And, uh, Johanna, I know how much you love this next detail. It looks like the killer also made himself a meal that he never ate. So there's like a plate of food next to the bowl of bloody water in the kitchen. So Yeah, we hate when they linger. Let's see. They found another slab of bacon in the icebox, which I think I already told you. So the kitchen door leading to the back porch was still closed and locked, as was the front door. It seems the key was taken by the killer. Because of how dry the blood was, they estimated that the murders happened around midnight. The general accepted window was between midnight and 5 a.m. Because the neighbor was up at 5 a.m., right? So she yeah. would have seen, presumably, if somebody had left. But I think they think that it was everything happened closer to midnight. We really have no crime scene photos. There is like one fo single photo out there, the provenance of which is strange, and all it shows is a mirror covered by a skirt, so it's not it's not particularly helpful. Unfortunately, a man did bring his camera and took a whole bunch of photos in an attempt to preserve what the scene looked like immediately following the discovery of the bodies, but... It was Ross Moore, I believe, who saw the guy at the house with the camera and thought he was being a creep. And they ended up in sort of a shoving match. And then Ross destroyed the film. So, yeah, it's too bad we don't still have that film, but I get it. Yeah, it was understandably why Ross would think that was just a creep and why he would destroy the film. Because Hank and the two doctors saw the scene and then, like in the, all the other cases, the property was swarming with curious neighbors and the house crime scene had been absolutely destroyed by people curious to see the horror for themselves. How do you call them? I always forget. 
motherfucking looky lose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it really was, it was beyond. People shut down their businesses and went to the house. People from like the next town over were getting on the train and coming into Villisca just to see the house. People were all over the house and property, leaving footprints, leaving fingerprints, touching things. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredibly bad. There's even reports that a local man took a piece of Joe's skull as a souvenir and displayed it at his pool hall. Lovely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The bodies lay there in their beds until 11pm due to red tape. Mm -hmm. The coroner had left with the bloodhound handler, so there was no one there to release the bodies to the undertaker. And when he got back at 9.30, the coroner said the scene was bedlam. Yeah. Yeah. And the bloodhounds that they took out, they came up empty. No surprise. I think it's it's possible that literally thousands of people went through that house. And of course, there was no fingerprinting or even crime scene photography done at the time. So we're likely never going to know who was responsible for these absolutely horrific attacks. But you do see some similarities in the murders we talked about last week. They all used a weapon of convenience. Yeah, like everyone would have an axe handy back in those days. And the only other weapon, if you remember, uh, they used, the murder used was a pipe, which again, the killer just used whatever was at hand and then left it behind. He tried to clean it up a little bit, but in the end, he didn't really care. Yeah, it's a shame that that was the case. I bet they would have caught the guy if he left, but held on to the axe. Although, well... <laughs> Let's look at some of the other similarities. Besides the creepy lantern stuff, they were all near railroad tracks, some closer to others, but none terribly far. A lot of them seemed to take place on the weekend. Yeah, they did, if not, if not all. Let's see. They covered the faces of the victims, although... This seems like it was done in different ways, right? Like in some of the cases it was done before and in some it was done after. But another clue was it seemed, I thought it was kind of interesting that the only sexually iffy business happened with young girls. So maybe a hebophile. Mm. A hebophile is interested in, for just our listeners who might not know the difference, hebophiles are interested in children who have like just gone through puberty, whereas pedophiles are prepubescent children. We often use pedophile for both, but there is a technically a difference. Okay, what else was there? The washing up and signs that the killer lingered. And apart from the one case, none of them had a dog. So maybe he just, you know, preferred houses, obviously without a watchdog. Yeah, that house, that the case with the house with the dog was, it was so strange. I just wonder at the showman's house, I think that dog might have known how to open and close the screen. I think he did. And like yeah. let himself in and out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why I didn't react. I think if it had been there, either the murder wouldn't have happened or the dog... Would have been another victim. Something would have happened to the dog. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. So those are the similarities in the murders, uh, but we should also keep in mind a lot of the details were published in the paper at the time. So, you know, could be copycats. Yeah, this could well be all unrelated, but I'm glad we talked about the other murders because I think this one is a lot more known, but I had never heard of the other ones before. I hadn't either. It's just so much tragedy. So let's finish the information on the tragedy in Villisca. The funerals for the eight people murdered in Villisca, six of them children. The funeral services were held in the town square on June 12, 1912, and thousands attended. The Des Moines Register that morning had reported that Mrs. Dillinger, unsurprisingly, was having a very difficult time. 
The caskets were not on display during the funeral, but they were later loaded on wagons and taken to Villisca Cemetery. The funeral procession was 50 wagons long and the path was cleared by National Guardsmen. Annie, I think you've got an article for us from about two months later after the funerals. I do. Unfortunately, I have a death notice. Villisca Review, Villisca, Iowa, Thursday, August 29, 1912, page 1. Death of an Infant Son A little son was born to Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Stillinger, Friday, August 23, 1912. But this little one was not well from the first. Its life was full of illness and suffering, which was more than the feeble body could stand. It passed away at half-past six o'clock Monday evening. The funeral services were held from the home Tuesday by Rev. W. J. Ewing, pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Villisca. Internment was in the Villisca Cemetery. Mr. and Mrs. Stillinger have the sympathy of the entire community in their bereavement. End quote. It's hard to imagine all the suffering these these parents have gone through. Yeah, their children were not supposed, or were just. It was just by bad luck that their children were wrong in the place, house. wrong time. Yeah. Yep. Oh, when I found that newspaper article, especially, I was just like that. I think that was actually the one where I was like, no, because I never heard about that. And it was like, oh, that poor. I just. All right. Okay, I think we're ready to stop crying about how sad this was. And it really was. People talk a lot about the Moore family, but I've just seen less about the Stillingers. So we wanted to be sure people understood how much they had gone through. I mean, they lost three babies in as many months. And I know the girls weren't technically babies, but they were their babies. Yeah, they lost their children, yeah. They did. All right, let's move away from the set and let's all get creeped out and angry about the suspects and the fact that this is still an unsolved case. Yeah, great. A lot of people like to be relaxed and happy, but I'll take creeped out and pissed off any day of the week. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, really quickly, one thing to mention is that a lot of people like to draw comparisons between this murder and the murders of the Hinterkaifeckers, which we covered. <laughs> That's my favorite word. You now. love that, right? I do. I really do. <laughs> which we covered way back in episode nine. So if you haven't listened to that one, please do. And there are a few reasons for this, too, really. The first is, I guess, in the barn, which was... Somewhere in the backyard. The original barn isn't existing. The one there now they built for um, tourism purposes. So back in the barn where the horses and everything were kept, they found that there was a, a hay pile or a hay bale. There was hay in some form in the barn. And there was a hole in the in the wood of the barn. So they deducted that you could apparently lie in the hay and peek out the hole to see the house. So one theory is that whoever killed them was waiting in the barn to kill them. But... I don't know. I I think it's probably less creepy and more likely to think that like a farmhand, somebody working for them, one of the kids, someone who belonged in the space might have occasionally taken a little rest on the hay pile and the people was just super helpful to see if mom and dad were coming to check on your chores. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not sure that that's... It's not like they found like discarded cigarette butts and sandwich wrappers and do you know what I mean? It's just like an impression in the hay. I agree, I agree. And it's not like in Hinterkaifeck where it was obvious that it was not done by the people living there. I think you are right. I don't think there was anything overly suspicious about the hay. Yeah. The other reason was that apparently a few cigarette butts had been found in the attic of the house. And some speculate that the killer was waiting and hiding in the attic, just as they think that somebody did in Hinterkaifeck, smoking cigarettes, waiting for them to fall asleep. 
But there are problems with this theory. So remember the attic? In this house was the space over the kitchen and it was on the same level as the bedrooms. It just had the lower roof and would have been storage. And you entered the attic through the back of the closet that Sarah and Joe used. So the problem with this theory is that reports say that there were boxes at the back of the closet and then clothes hanging in front. So this space didn't appear to have been accessed at the time of the murders. Yeah, and I doubt the killer would have put boxes and things back, you know, blocking the door again, yeah. right? And then all those boxes and stuff in front of the door, that would have probably woken up someone in the house just trying to get out of the attic. Yeah. You know, like all crouched down and trying to get those boxes. There's no way. Yeah, plus I think they would have smelled the cigarette smoke. Oh, yeah. Coming, yeah. Uh, for sure, they definitely would have smelled the cigarette smoke. And you also hear people say that the killer waited in their basement. But remember, there were no interior stairs. You couldn't get from the basement into the house. You still would have had to go outside and then in one of the doors or windows. So that theory seems also pointless. We're going to talk briefly about the suspects in this case. And I say briefly because just covering the suspects alone could have been part three and part four of this case. But we have to remember that this case, like the other five murdered families, they're still all unsolved. So we're just going to talk a bit about the most popular suspects. Yeah, just like we did in Hinterkaifeck. Yeah. So... The first suspect detained was Joe Ricks. He was detained in Monmouth, Illinois on June 15th, 1912. And he stepped off the train and was taken into custody for wearing blood-stained shoes. And he said he'd gotten the shoes by trading with a homeless man. When he was arrested, a 16-year-old niece of the Moors who had seen a man she didn't recognize near the murder scene the day before the crime traveled with the Moore family attorney to see Joe Riggs for herself. And when she said he was not the man she had seen, he was just released. The second suspect, Andy Sawyer, he was detained by the sheriff three days later on June 18, 1912. So every stranger in town, even in a train town, was looked at with some degree of side-eye, right, after these murders. I mean, that's obvious. Definitely. Yeah. Not a good time to be a stranger in town with an axe. So he'd <laughs> shown up, and that's who he was. He showed up in Burlington, Iowa, on the morning the bodies were discovered, and I guess he was very disheveled and wet because uh, he had walked through a river, and he was looking for a job. The foreman, Thomas Dyer, needed an extra hand that day, so he just hired him on the spot. But his behavior was odd. So there's grand jury testimony basically saying that Andy bought a paper that night that had the news of the murders all over it. And he talked a lot about the murders. He was just really interested in them. But he wasn't alone in that. I think I read somewhere that the Velisca murders is what finally took Titanic off the front page news. So lots of people were following the case. I mean, of course, a crime like this was reported in all papers, tabloids, it was everywhere. Yeah, exactly. But what set Andy apart was the fact that he, he slept fully clothed and with his axe. He liked to sleep with his axe, which people found odd, and I'm not going to lie, I agree. He also told people that he was in town in Villisca the night of the murders, and he left so that he wouldn't be a suspect. But it was the fact that he was often heard muttering to himself and rubbing his head while sort of saying things under his breath, like, cut their heads off, cut their heads off, before he'd swing his axe at things that really concerned people. 
I think he was probably just very mentally ill. I think he was most likely totally harmless. And he was actually really lucky because turned out on the night of the murders, he'd been arrested in another town and he'd been put on a train. Like the sheriff was like, get on the train, get out of here. And that had happened around 11 p.m. And if that hadn't happened, if he didn't have that rock solid alibi from another sheriff, then they very possibly could have hanged a man who who seemed to have just been dealing with mental illness. I mean, that's the kind of person who gets lynched, usually. Of course, of In course. situations like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's talk about some of the more complicated suspects. Okay, so maybe the most obvious, of course, is going to be F.F. Jones, and his motive is pretty simple. He was Josiah's former boss. Remember, Joe left his job working for Jones, and he started his own business and took the largest account, the John Deere, with him. Yeah, and I think John Deere was like a really big deal because I think one of the things I read was that the John Deere headquarters was the third call made to notify anyone that the family had been killed. Can you imagine the third was like, oh, hang on, I just have to call his client. Like, what? So it was big business. Uh, very important. And you might remember that it was alleged that Joan's daughter-in-law was having an affair with Joe, so Joe Moore had humiliated FF not once, but twice. And at the time the murders happened, Jones and Moore disliked each other so much they would cross the street to avoid walking past one another. Oof. Yeah. So, Frank Fernando Jones, F.F. Jones, was an unlikely suspect himself. He was not only known to be a businessman and member of the church community who had worked as a teacher and a bookkeeper before starting his own store, which earned enough money to start his own bank. He served in both the Iowa House and Senate and on the State Board of Education. He was a very prominent figure, not just in Villisca, but in the whole state. Okay, don't be mad, but I'm wondering if their house had electricity and plumbing. <laughs> I just... I think it did. I'm pretty sure it did. I want to know. He sounds like the guy. <laughs> You'd think, right? So I did read that both Ross Moore, who was the brother that found the bodies, and he was the uncle to the Moore children, and also Joe Stillinger, Lena and Ina's dad, both men believed, I think, that Jones was responsible for the beginning. I think they never stopped believing that. Both the Burns and Pinkerton detective agencies were working this murder, but it wasn't until years later, so only in 1916, that Detective Wilkerson, who worked for the Burns detective agency, openly accused Frank and his son Albert of the murder. But he didn't think this prominent man had done the message job themselves, of course. Because according to Wilkerson, they had hired William Mansfield, also known as George Worley and or Jack Tornborg, I guess. Yeah, if you're going to make up fake names, why not make them super hard to pronounce? It makes sense though, right? Because nobody would remember it correctly. But wouldn't you want a name that is not that doesn't stand out? No, because, like, you'd remember John Smith, but, like, Francis, was it Turnbog or Turn... Turn... It's like, you can't even... Yeah, maybe, uh... Yeah. So, George Worley and or Jack Turn, Turnbog, Turnbog. <laughs> he was a suspected serial killer and cocaine fiend. So two years after the Villisca murders on July 5th, 1914, his wife and baby and his wife's parents were murdered with an axe in Blue Island, Illinois. And Wilkerson believed that Mansfield was also responsible for the Paola murders. Yeah, and a few other murders, I think, too, that weren't related to our case. But according to the beloved Getting the Axe blog, we love you, Inspector Winship, uh, in a post dedicated to the inconsistency of Wikipedia, <laughs> quote, by 
1915, the Blue Island case was cleared up after a former mentally unstable lodger who had become obsessed with Mrs. Mansfield confessed, and Mansfield was nowhere near Paola when the Hudsons were murdered, end quote. So it just really sounds like Wilkerson was grasping at straws unless we've missed something, and it just seems like it caused a lot more problems than actually solving the murder. Yeah, exactly. An alibi cleared Mansfield, and Mansfield then sued Wilkerson and was awarded um, $2,225, which is over 50k in today's money. So Not a bad payday. That's a good deal. Yeah. Both Jones men denied they had anything to do with the murder, but to this day people believe they are in fact responsible. Yeah, I think a lot of people in Villisca still do believe that. Next, we have Henry Lee Moore. So in May 1913, a federal investigator, Special Agent Matthew McClory of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, this was pre-FBI. So it seems he was the first one to link the murders that we've discussed in these last two episodes and suggested that they might be the work of a serial killer. But he didn't think it was only these six cases we talked about. He thought there were 22 cases across the United States, and he believed that a man by the name of Henry Lee Moore, no relation to Josiah Moore and his family, was to blame. But no one else really thinks that Henry was the killer, or I should say specifically the killer in Villisca, because Henry was definitely a murderer. Two months after the Villisca killings in December of 1912, Henry had met a woman that he wanted to marry, but she wanted nothing to do with him because he was poor and he didn't have his own house. So he did what you'd expect. He took out some life insurance policies and then murdered his grandmother and mother with an axe. Then he pretended to find them when he returned home for Christmas. Yeah, but that case had a very clear motive and it doesn't make sense. That he'd end a murder spree with his family, I think it would be more logical that he would start there. Yeah, and I just, for some reason this one just bothered me, like, that he, it's that thing about, you know, the person who finds the bodies or whatever, but he just must have been like, oh no, my only family, and on Christmas, oh, it's terrible, I'm suffering, who do I talk to about this life insurance like it was so fake like it was just so obvious so they lock him up henry served 36 years of his life sentence and he was paroled in 1949 he was never charged with the Velisca murders or any of the other murders that he was uh, suspected of just his uh, mom and grandma Okay, so who do we have next yes the next suspect we have to talk about was lynn george jacqueline kelly that's quite a name, huh? It's amazing. So he was an English immigrant and a preacher who was also a known sex fiend with documented mental health issues. So he's he doesn't only have a really interesting name. <laughs> he has some issues. Lots of yeah. issues. He sounds super fun. So he had arrived in town before the murders and had been at the children's day event that night at the church, which the Moore and Stillinger children had performed in, and he was open about leaving town the morning the bodies were discovered. He was a small man, only five foot two and one hundred nineteen pounds, or one hundred fifty-eight centimeters and a little under fifty-six kilograms. Yeah, but what he lacked in height, he made up for in creepiness, because he'd apparently been called a few days before the murders, peeping into windows. Two years after the murders, in 1914, while living in South Dakota, he was arrested when he posted an ad. It's the best now. He was arrested when he posted an ad looking for a typist who would also be able to model. 
When a young woman responded to the ad, he wrote back and he told her that one of her requirements of the job not mentioned in the paper was, hold on to your seats right now, <laughs> that she would have to type in the nude. She went to the police and it seems they helped her write back a letter and eventually he was arrested. Yeah, in my mind, they totally catfished him. Like in my mind, it was a whole thing with the police telling her what to write. And yeah, I think so. So the Smithsonian article said his later was, quote, so obscene, lewd, lascivious and filthy as to be offensive to this honorable court and improper to be spread upon the record thereof, end quote. I know. There's no record. Like, it was too dirty to put in the court records. I really want to know what that letter said, right? I think because he was a prominent member of the church and a white man, he went to a mental health facility instead of prison. He also apparently returned to the house in Villisca about a week after the murders, and he pretended Tended to be an inspector from Scotland Yard. I guess that would explain his accent, right? So that he could look around the house. But this last one, I think if that were the only thing that made him suspicious, the whole town would have been suspect. Yeah, right. So other reasons that the pervy preacher was a suspect was that he was left-handed and the coroner had determined the murder was likely left-handed due to blood spatter evidence. Because of uh, the maybe peeping nature of the way Lena was displayed, he seemed like he could be the killer. And there was also, of course, his confession. So here's a quote from Mike-Smithsonian article. You want to read it, Annie? Oh, sure. Quote, Arrested in 1917, the Englishman was repeatedly interrogated and eventually signed a confession to the murder in which he stated, quote, I killed the children upstairs first and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to mind and I picked up the axe, went into the house, and I killed them, End quote. This he later recanted and the couple who claimed to have spoken to him on the morning after the murders changed their story. With little left to tie him firmly to the killings, the first grand jury to hear Kelly's case hung 11 to 1 in favor of refusing to indict him and a second panel freed him, end quote. So I'm sure his wife must have been absolutely thrilled that he was freed. Or was she? She was probably like, fingers crossed, please get this guy out of my life. Oh, but that's it. That's pretty much the end, for now at least. I mean, there are still cold case detectives uh, looking at these cases and citizen sleuths, but at this point, honestly, I I'd be surprised if, if any of these are definitively solved. Yeah, unless we all luck out and get a deathbed confession or find an old diary, which is usually Annie's hope. It really is. I... God, I love a deathbed confession. But, you know, it's been over a hundred years, so I'm not I'm not feeling very hopeful. Do you think it was a serial killer, though? Sometimes I do, mostly with the similarities between Lena and Georgie. I think the Lena and Georgie connection is the thing that bothers me the most. But then also the papers were reporting all of the facts of the case, like as each one happened. So it would be so easy to make a murder look like it was part of a serial, right? And hide your true motive. And that would account for differences. I don't know that the covering of mirrors is that odd either, for example, because you, our dear listeners, hopefully you've listened to the first uh, Victorian episode we did. Covering mirrors was the norm. And this is only about a decade post, you know, we're in Edwardian era now. So it's, this might have just been force of habit for somebody to cover a mirror, don't you think? I don't think the covering of the mirrors is, is odd, just as you say, it was rather common practice. But I can definitely see why many believe that this was all the same killer. There are just so this, the small details, like the, yeah. the chimney of the lamps yeah. at the end of the bed, stuff like that. The double cases are interesting too. Yes. 
The Wayne and Burnham are the obvious ones, but then the Longmire startling away an intruder after the Polar murders. In other towns, including Villisca, people thought there were maybe an attempted break-in. Yeah, and weirdly, I mean, if you think about it, Villisca was, was two families destroyed. They were just in one house. So if he knew that, And that might have been part of his deal. I don't know. I just, it's so hard to imagine that MO, but we know there were double events in New Orleans too. I don't know. I'm just, I'm not 100% sold that it was a serial. It could be. But I do think that there's also this thing where, like, we as as humans, we'd prefer it to be a serial because then it's one awful person doing all of this and there aren't 20 guys with axes out there, you know? Yeah, maybe it was not all connected, but I think that some of them were connected. I yeah. really think so. And I don't think we talked about the Axemen, but people do think that they're, some people think they're related. I don't. Yeah, I mean, people think that person who killed the Hinterkai Fekker then yeah. moved to the States, and I don't think that. I no. think you can't connect all the horrible unsolved ex-murders no. in the world to one person. But I think some of them might be really connected, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Well, as for the Velisca house, you can visit it. And uh, a couple bought it, and then they spent a bunch of money removing the plumbing and electricity and restoring it to the way it looked back when the murders happened. And uh, you can go and take a daytime tour. I believe it's $10 a person. And you can stay overnight for a little bit over $400 for the night. I think that's for six people with an extra charge for extra people. You need to bring, this sounds like the opposite of my kind of place. So bring your own pillows and sleeping bags. And there's a bathroom in the barn. So good luck. But seriously, though, it's it's allegedly haunted. There's a Ghost Adventures episode, but I couldn't bring myself to watch it. I tried because I was like, Johanna's not going to want to talk about the ghosty aspects of this house. I'm going to have to do that. And so I was like, oh, yeah, what's this like? And I was yeah, like, absolutely right. <laughs> this is terrible. I don't know. Maybe it is. It very well could be haunted. There's a lot of reports of which I Make, make me kind of sad. So like people leave toys and balls and things and there's reports of, you know, toys being played with. I think there might be EVPs out there. I need to look more into the haunting. All I can say is that I, I hope that if it is haunted, I just, I really hope it's a residual haunting and that people aren't pestering this family in the afterlife. Like that's the one thing I don't like about it because I do believe, unlike you, I do believe in ghosts, but I do believe that they were just, if this family is somehow trapped in this house, if any member, mm. my only hope would be that if we or anyone who listens to this went and if you wanted to stay over and experience something, just treat these people with respect. You know, don't be, don't, don't be. Don't be a dick. Yeah, because the whole thing just makes me sad. I, You know, you don't want to be stuck where you were murdered. That's a bummer. Go to the light. But if you can't, you know, don't throw balls at them and things. Like, just be cool. Okay, that's it. That was uh, Willisca. Oh, thank God that's done. I'm sure. I'm just waiting for the angry emails that are like, you missed this thing, but... Hellions, <laughs> uh, you can not only send us angry messages now, you can also leave <laughs> us angry voicemails. Really, you can leave us voicemail now. You just go to our page, freshhellpodcast.com, and you click voicemail, and this is your chance. Uh, you can tell us all the things we mispronounced. You can leave us whatever message. Just please don't be too nasty. No. But we do love to hear your voices. It's it's fun. It's awesome. It really is. It really is. Come join our Facebook group. It's a really fun spot to be. Voting is now closed for the 
anniversary episode, right? So, um, but we still have fun things going on. So come say hi, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. If you have just a moment, it would be incredibly helpful if you would leave us a review on iTunes. That does help other people find our show. And uh, let's talk about something good. My something good this week is a recommendation for a movie. It's a kind of a motivational movie for me. In our Facebook group before New Year, we talked about all of our New Year's resolutions and mine was to go to get back into running. Unfortunately, I was just like the last weeks constantly battling a cold, but I'm still on it. I do it. I, I gonna do it. And last week I watched uh, the movie Britney Runs a Marathon. And it's a lovely movie. It's about a woman who goes from a rather unhealthy lifestyle to running a marathon. And it's based on a true story, which is not surprising because let's face it, there are tons of similar stories out there. But it's nice. It's inspirational. And I can highly recommend it. And as soon as my nose is clear and my coughing is gone, I will start running again and I will keep you updated because just as Annie with her appointments said last week, telling all of you out there helps me to go through with it because I have to stick to it then. And you're going to help me. Yeah. If you see me running, you probably want to start running yourself in whatever direction I'm running in because I don't <laughs> run. I don't run. If I'm running, there's a tsunami or someone with a you know, chainsaw or a pack of, you know, angry coyotes. Yeah, somebody with an axe. But generally, if I'm like sprinting or running, it's not good. It's not a good sign. It's very bad. And that's one of the hardest things about my illness, actually. Like all I can really do now is like a recumbent bike and swimming. So, uh, well, my mammogram last week went fine. I didn't get any results yet, but hopefully it'll be fine. My something good is that Paul really surprised me for Valentine's Day this year. So usually we don't do anything for Valentine's. We're just not. Valentine's is that holiday where it's like, give me flowers any other day. Don't buy them when they're three times the price. And let's not try to go out to a nice meal when everyone, like, let's just go on some yeah. random Wednesday, you know, so we don't really do Valentine's Day. We're the same. Yeah. Never celebrated Valentine's. Yeah. But you know how obsessed I am with Schitt's Creek. It's like my favorite television. It's my happy place right now is this television show. And so the character Alexis on it, who's played by Annie Murphy, she wears this necklace, which is just like a sideways letter A. And she's always wearing it on the show. And so I commented, oh, I should get one of those necklaces. And he surprised me with one for Valentine's Day. So that really made me laugh. And uh, it's beautiful. And so that was... Uh, that was great. That was a nice Valentine's Day surprise. I love it. He's yeah. so thoughtful. He, and it's a very nice necklace. He yeah. really is. Yeah. It's so pretty. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I really, we really hope that you're having a, an okay day so far and your week's going to go well and it's going to be good times for everyone. Please say hi to your dogs and cats and guinea pigs and wallabies. Yeah. Snakes, rats, bats, all of it. Tell everyone we said hi. And until next week, if you're going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye. <laughs>